You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. All right, so to, I know it's been a week since uh, we met for this study, I was out of town last weekend, but uh, to quickly summarize where we were is looking at the kind of supernatural worldview of scripture as it's presented to us, especially in those primeval chapters, Genesis 1 through 11. We had the three falls, we considered the fall of man, the fall of heavenly beings, and the fall of nations, and how all of them specifically point towards Christ being the inheritor of those nations that were cast out by Yahweh and grafting all the way at that point the promise of the Gentiles forming with the Jews, the church eternal. It's a beautiful thing. What we want to consider in this uh, series that we're going through, uh, we want to think about actually the, uh, the, the main enemy that we face, the spiritual rebel who has spearheaded our own corruption and the corruption of the world, and ultimately the judgment that is reserved for him and the nature of his person. So we are looking at our adversary, Satan. Uh, we want to begin with who actually is Satan? What is this being? Who he, where did he come from? What do we know about him? There's a lot in scripture, and especially we have to consider that, we are, again, we are not Hebrews living in the second temple period of church history we are thousands of years removed from that. We have to consider that there are different ways of speaking about this being, who he is, that the Hebrew language and different references and different literary devices have been used throughout scripture to actually get that point across. So what is interesting for our consideration is the names of Satan as we find them throughout scripture are titles and descriptions that as we understand it, the devil is never given a true name, a, a, you know, I am Jim, that is not necessarily Satan. We'll get to why we call him that, because ultimately Christ refers to him there definitively in the New Testament. But all throughout scripture, he is referred to by what he does more as a verb or a job title than who he is. So the first time we actually see Satan used in scripture chronologically is back in Job. It's right after the beginning. Remember, we have the introduction where Job himself is understood to be this wealthy man. He kind of sets him up for the story. Job 2, we see God sitting in his divine council. He has the sons of God and his advisors there, and Satan walks in. And the Hebrew there is, again, it's a title. It's titular. So it's the Satan, or which means the accuser, the adversary. This is a thing he did. Now, we don't know. At Job's time, at this point, we assume that this is now after truly the beginning of history as we know it, but this is Job out of time. So in this scene, we understand that this is either his role as a fallen being or his role as unfallen, but I believe it's, un it's fallen at this point. So Satan is still under the... Um, the kind of jurisprudence and the oversight of God as still a fallen person, but someone who is doing his will because God ordains all things. So we see there are many other names in scripture as well that pop up for this. Uh, again, this, is a, this title uh, suggests that this is his job. Just as we were referring to kind of categories of beings last time, this is his job title. Next week, we'll talk about angels and demons. Angels, we know, that's just messenger. It's not what they are, it's what they do. And so there's nuance to be pulled out there. So other parts of scripture, we have many different names to go through. We have the dragon, 
This shows up Old New Testament in many places, even outside of apocalyptic prophecy. The serpent, that is probably the best known synonym, but that is also a similar wording to the dragon, as well as the Leviathan. These are all terms that are meaning these same concepts. This is in Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Revelation. There's the adversary or the accuser, which again is speaking directly to what he does. He accuses the righteous of their sin. In Job's case, again, we see that God takes him up on the offer of that accusation and uses the entire narrative of Job to show the uh, reconciliation of Job's understanding of who he is with who God is. And even though the end of Job shows him really in the same place that he was in the beginning, he's a vastly different, much more righteous man as a result. He's been sanctified deeply by the afflictions of Satan. Uh, we have the king of this world in Matthew, the prince of the power of the air. We see uh, perhaps more grandiose titles attributed to this being in the New Testament. Paul and Matthew giving him these uh, kind of dominion names. The day star or the sun of dawn. This is where we get uh, the word Lucifer that we understand. That's actually from the Vulgate, the Latin translation of this part of Isaiah is getting at the idea that this is a, a heavenly being. Remember, we talked about before the stars of heaven are even understood to be spiritual creatures. And in this way, he is the day star, kind of the shining bright one. Uh, if we did even more of a deep dive into the name of like the serpent, it's the Hebrew Nahash, and that can mean serpent as a noun, that can mean shining as an adjective, that can mean divination or kind of witchcraft as a verb. It's a very curious term in the Old Testament. And we can see that this shining, fiery, burnished, bronzy idea that comes out of many of the names associated here. Uh, there is the devil, which is obviously what we tend to synonymize with Satan. And that, again, is, is somebody who is opposed to someone. That is what that name means. You are opposed to, in many cases, the righteous. Uh, there's also a very curious connection uh, that Christ himself makes in Matthew that connects Satan to Baal in the Old Testament. That Beelzebub that he uses in talking about the idea of you cannot cast, Beelzebub would not cast himself out of his own house. In 1 Kings, or pardon me, 2 Kings, that is the name given to Baal specifically in the context of Assyria, Baal-zebub or Beelzebub. So it's a New Testament wording of the same thing. So there's, there's curiosity there as to whether or not, in fact, this is the same guy who's been around Old Testament, New Testament, assaulting the church in its various forms. But for our purposes, we do tend to refer to Satan as a proper name, uh, as Christ himself, in as early as Matthew 4, simply says, this is who our adversary is. So we don't need to be uh, clunky and say the Satan every time, even though that would be the old Hebrew. We can say the devil, Satan. But there are many names throughout both Testaments of Scripture that are inflecting different characteristics of who he is, what he seems like, how he appears, what he does, what his primary functions are. But we can always keep Job in our, uh, our lens here because we have to recall, and we'll get to this in, in due time as well, Satan is subordinate to God. He is not as equal. He is his tool, just as everything else is. He has agency as we do, but that agency is subordinate to God's ordination. Job is a great example, again, that our difficulty in life, the drawing out of the dross of the gold in the furnace, is for our sanctification. 
And even with the kingdom of darkness, championed by our adversary Satan, he is yet a means to the end of God's purposes. We can never forget that. Any questions on these names before we move on? Is that an exhaustive list? Oh, I would say by no means. No, and, and many of these as well, John, uh, the, the question is simply, is this an exhaustive list of names? And no, uh, there are more terms that we can find. There are also many more references for each of these. I just didn't want to you know, blast out the slide. So many of these have a lot of different inferences that we can find. Uh, the Psalms, Job, uh, Kings, Amos, go to the minor prophets. They're just riddled with these. So all of these we have to understand are you know, in, in the trajectory of moving towards the New Testament era where Christ is taking decisive action against this figure. That's where we see all of these different inflections kind of come to a head. Yeah, Colin. A couple of days, we stopped someone on the street and said, who is in the Bible, who is the day star, who is the son of God? They might say Jesus, or they might say God. Sure. So Colin's question is, you know, if, if you were to kind of stop somebody on the street and you said, hey, I'm talking about the day star or the king of the world, somebody might say, oh, are you talking about Jesus himself? When in fact we're referring to, or scripture is referring to kind of the arch enemy of our souls. I think a large part of that, and including where especially that kind of Luciferian picture comes from, he's described as an angel of light. He's a manipulator. He's somebody who wants to appear to be God. That's his whole scheme, is to eventually usurp that authority, both to capture our souls and to revel in authority that is not given to him. So... Uh, we've said before that if we're going to kind of uh, distill spiritual warfare down to any one thing, it's the objective is to deceive and keep people away from the gospel and the worship of God. The true worship, the rightly ordered affections of the soul, it's deception. So very often we're going to see throughout uh, these names, they, they tend to imply that, that this is in fact the guy who does set up shop on earth, even though that is not his title. However, we'll see in a little bit, Colin, that uh, some of the way the New Testament authors attribute the kind of differentiation of where he's acting and what he's doing does speak to these terms in honesty. So there is some sort of truth to Satan being the king of this world or the god of the earth or the prince of the air. So they're, they, but even there, they sound lofty, but they are very, very low in the grand scheme of things. All right. So Jonathan Edwards has an excellent definition um, and this is coming out of uh, some of his letters. That fallen archangel, he was educated in the best divinity school in the universe. That is the heaven of heavens. A creature well more than thousands of years in age. An ancient foe, but one who is not infirmed by age. This is one of many Puritan takes here that are, are adding a lot of uh, robust understanding of who we're dealing with here. Keith Evans, he was a speaker for our men's retreat two years ago. Uh, he's pursuing a dissertation right now on recovering reformed demonology. So I'm clipping some notes from him. He has this to say, we do not face a foe who is equal to God. He is neither omniscient nor omnipresent. 
He is neither as wise as Yahweh, nor does he occupy the same or equivalent position as his infinitely perfect and divine creator. That said, we have at least a 10,000-year-old creature of insurmountably greater intelligence than any human person who has far better theology than we ever will on this side of glory and perhaps as many as a trillion servants at his side. So we want to understand a few things here. One, that Satan is not equal to God. There's a, you know, I think pop culture tends to skew a, a, a very misinformed duality between light and dark, good and evil, as though they're, you know, this balance that is always maintained. That's not the case. Satan is a creature. God is the creator. There is no discussion there. Ultimately, Satan is, as I said at the end of last time, infinitely subordinate to God. However, he's a lot higher than we are and far more potent than an average human being. We can't misunderstand that we are also not equal. However, with the power of Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, he cannot deceive us and destroy the gospel truth living in us. One thing that I consider here in in the study of a lot of these darker things this year is that, frankly, we should not be afraid or intimidated by the content of evil. It should only encourage us that we know we have the Redeemer, King, Christ, who has conquered this in time and will consummate it later, that we see as the enemy's abilities increase our understanding of those, so the awe and appreciation of the Lord's might and sovereignty also increase. There is no shadow that overtakes the light. It is very much the inverse. We think of Psalm 104, 26. Leviathan, whom you formed, plays in the sea. This is a very interesting consideration of the stature of Satan in the created order. God has given Satan a particular place to act, but he is entirely under the Lord's jurisdiction. Satan rules by his own imagination, but to the Lord, he merely frolics in the proverbial kiddie pool. That is his domain. He's playing over there while God has everything else in order. Remember, consider that. We, We are certainly oppressed in spiritual warfare. There is no joke there. But at the end of the day, that is not a reality that defeats us. It cannot. Here is, uh, going back to Isaiah, where this, this, the idea of Lucifer comes from, he has this to say in his prophecy, how are you fallen from heaven, O day star, the sun of dawn? How you were cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities? There's a lot here. It's very beautiful, rich language that Isaiah gives to us. Uh, one is that, again, he's, he's trying to lay the nations low. We talked about that as a, a large part of the deception of the nations is ultimately after God says, I will establish my inheritance with Jacob and form Israel and call Abram, the rest of the world is left to the devices of lesser beings, overseers. And these fall, and we see them all throughout the Old Testament. These are the pagan gods of the nations. 
Satan laid those nations low. It is his deception that ripples throughout the ancient Near East in the context we see in the Old Testament and across the world. And you can see his ambition as well. He wants to set himself above the stars of God. Again, that is a reference not just simply to the sun and moon floating out there in space, but to this heavenly host. He wants to be above them, top dog. He will make himself like the most high and ascend to the heights of the clouds. You can see all this very proud language. We know if there's any one great foible of Satan, it is his pride. And we'll get to that shortly. Any questions on this before we move on? Yes, Carolyn. Just the, um, the statement about Satan having a greater intelligence, you can understand that. But as far as theology and theology being the study of God, mm-hmm. um, without the illumination of the Holy Spirit, how can we possibly know God better than us? That's, that's confusing. Yeah, it's a great question. So Carolyn asks, we can understand the intelligence of Satan and, and his being a larger, more expansive, intelligent being than we are. However, what is this statement about theology? And that multiple writers talk about the theology of Satan being superior to her own. And I would say it's not that Satan knows God intimately as a friend, as a lover, as a king. He knows him as an enemy that he studied for a very long time. Consider in the New Testament, we know that you know even the demons know who Christ is, and they shudder at it. They have an intimate knowledge of who God is, but they hate him. They loathe him. So yes, I can appreciate the devotional element of of theology where that he certainly lacks. But the the statements here is to say he's been around the block a lot longer than we have and in fact comes out of the same place where God was. As a result, simply he knows his stuff better than we do. We should not delude ourselves to the contrary. Linda. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, Lena makes a good point. He's an angel. That's what we understand. His origin is, in fact, from the, the throne room of God. And then we'll look at that in Ezekiel shortly. He was a, a cherub. He was a guardian of this great place in Eden himself. That's why he was there. Of course, he has a front row seat to what goes on in God's court. We don't. We see it by faith here. He sees it by sight at one point. John? Saul Alinsky, in his book, Twelve Rules for Radicals, dedicates the book to Satan because at least he got his own kingdom out of it. Um, I think the answer, I would think the answer is you look and you see Christ and you say, I hate that. Mm-hmm. That's what Satan, they, they understand it perfectly and it despises God. And I think that's the difference. And the, the, yeah. or the difference when even non-believers or our, our, us without Christ see that in the Yeah, John's point is that Satan knows exactly who God is and hates him because of who he is. And uh, just as the unbelieving heart knows, as Paul says, the truth of the condition of who they are, yet they suppress that, they bury it, they want nothing to do with it because they want to be their own God. And the irony to your statement, John, is that Satan thinks he gets his own kingdom. He most certainly does not. All right, let's move on to then the nature of temptation as Satan works against us. Uh, Stephen Sharnock, 
uh, one of the great Puritans, says, Satan paints God with his own colors. Think all the way back right, right at the beginning at, at Genesis 3. Did, well, did God really say that this would happen to you? He's projecting doubt, manipulation, deception onto the Lord and saying, hey, I think God's trying to pull a fast one on you. Let me, let me give you the real scoop. But that is contrary entirely to the nature of God. We know he is perfectly just and true. There is no deception with the Lord. And yet, where we see Satan show up distinctly to tempt or to dissuade or to deceive, he doesn't ever say, hey, I'm a bad guy. You better do what I say. No, he's always trying to kind of play the room and hoodwink or deceive or uh, trespass on the integrity of someone who he's interacting with. So I think Sharnock's statement there is very helpful. Richard Gilpin also says, Satan bombards us with effort-filled and constant temptations that we might fall even only to one. He is a diligent angel whose patience and desire for our corruption far outstrips our capacity to resist without the finger of God pressing on our hearts. He is ever more persistent to destroy us than we are able to pursue our own holiness in regeneration. It is nothing for him to compass sea and land, to labor to the utmost in his employment. It is all his business to tempt and destroy, and his whole heart is in it. Hence, intermission and cessation are never to be expected. Leave it to the Puritans to turn a phrase there on that description. Calvin also follows that up with a shorter summary. We shall never have a ceasefire with our enemy. And we'll talk a bit more about where Satan is today and the, the kind of the scope of cosmic spiritual warfare. But consider that if, if Christ does win in the end, which we know he does, you have effectively an adversary who has nothing to lose at this point. He knows he's going down with a ship. And that is where, you know, kind of the analogy of like the rat backed into the corner, that's when it's the most dangerous. That's when it's the most furious at the loss of his authority. As John mentioned, he wants to think that he has a kingdom. He knows he does not, and that infuriates him. William Jenkins goes on to talk about his temptation. He is an apple for Eve, a grape for Noah, a change of raiment for Gehazi, and a purse for Judas. He knows exactly the weaknesses of our hearts and tailors temptation to undermine us. He doesn't do it by throwing paint at a wall and seeing what sticks. He knows us very well. Not as well as God, by no means. But again, he's had a lot more time to analyze the human heart than we have in our short tenures here together. William Perkins, let it be observed what a precious thing the soul of man is. The purchasing of it can make the proud spirit of Satan so far to abuse itself as to be at the command of a silly woman. Again, what an inveterate malice Satan bears to man, which for the gaining of a soul will do that which is so contrary to his enlightened nature. It may teach man what to esteem of his soul and not to sell it for so base a price to godlessness. I think that's an especially poignant comment that Perkins makes regarding how valuable we are and how, because we bear the image of God, we are eternal treasures to the Lord. I think there's a misconception here as well that we can address that sometimes we look, again, with this kingdom building that Satan pursues, that he wants, he wants us for himself. 
I don't think that's what we see in Scripture. I think he hates our guts, and he, he, he absolutely loathes that anyone walks around with the image of God printed on their hearts. It's not that he wants to win converts for himself. It's that he wants to take as many people down with him as he possibly can. He hates us. In this case, what malice he bears to man that for the gaining of a soul will do which is so contrary to his enlightened nature. He is among the highest of created beings and would abase himself for the sake of ruining our souls. That's a profound thought. Nope. Okay. We go here to 2 Corinthians. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Many of the the writers of church history will refer to the designs or the wiles or the devices or all these fancy words simply to say the tricks and the motivations that Satan leverages against us. It is not merely a blanket statement temptation. Again, he's tailoring these for us. He knows who we are. He's been around. He's been listening in on our conversations. He knows what our thoughts are. He sits there to tempt tailor-made for our destruction. But... Paul is saying we have no reason to be ignorant of this reality. In fact, it, is, it behooves us to prepare ourselves daily to stand up against temptation, to know where it comes from, to know why it affects us, to know what the aim of its corruption is. Jack. Derek and I were just thinking too, and as you said earlier, Satan's not omniscient, omnipresent. How does he know us personally so well, or is it just the extension of you know, the demons and that kind of thing that have a similar knowledge? Or where does that come from? How does yeah. he cross that? Yeah, Jack has a great question. So if we know that Satan is not omniscient, he's not everywhere, he's not at all places, he doesn't know everything, how is it that he has studied us so well, especially individually? And the, the latter point that Jack brings up there I think is very poignant in that he has a lot of uh, men on his payroll, as it were. Keith Evans suggested trillions. Other Puritan authors and church historians have said, you know, innumerable angels. There, there is, when we eventually get to Revelation and see a third of heaven is cast out with Satan, that's presumably a very large amount of spiritual creatures and beings. These who can sit, even in this room with us as we know, that, you know, as we, we read in, in uh, I think it was First Kings a few weeks ago, when Elijah is talking to his servant and he says, I, I just don't understand, where is the army of the Lord? Elijah prays and says, let him see. And right in that spot, he sees the innumerable army of this, you know, fiery chariots and soldiers. They're right there. The angels are present. We don't see them. We don't interact with them directly with our own eyes every day, but they are here. The spiritual reality permeates everything we do. So I think that the assumption that these writers are looking at as they comment on Scripture is to say, there are a lot of eyes and ears that are out there listening to what we do, where we say. Well, we'll talk about divination and things uh, in a future lesson. But one of the arguments there too is, you know, how, how can sometimes prophecy from you know kind of a dark origin be correct? Well, you know, if you've got somebody listening in on the secrets of somebody else's sharing, that can make its way back for use to again deceive you and tell you, oh, this is where power is. That's what they 
That's where this knowledge comes from. So I would err in that direction, Jack, that ultimately it is. It's, it's not just one bad guy out there. He just happens to be running the mob, as it were. There are lots of operatives. Rob? So the, the, the question simply is, can you actually sell your soul to the devil? And I think we would see abundantly that there are even examples in Scripture, Old and New Testaments, of people who are, to borrow William Perkins' language, confederates of the adversary. They are working in tandem deliberately with Satan in order to gain power. We see there's the, the woman with the, the divining spirit in Acts, or we see Balaam or the witch of Endor in the, in the Old Testament, where there, there's obvious cooperation here that is not just, whoops, I happen to summon Satan. Like, no, we, are, we made an arrangement. We're on the same page, and it's a little reciprocal environment here. And again, we see even there that um, Satan is happy to enter into these things because if he can take down that person and also delude others with it, sure. Now, I can't give you the mechanical nuts and bolts of how confederacy with the adversary looks like, but we see examples in Scripture and we've seen historically examples in many places. Uh, we think right, right off the bat, we have in Acts Simon Magus, who is you know, understood to be kind of the first of these modern satanic sorcerers, he had a lot of influence and went on to spout all sorts of heresy in the first century that the church had to deal with for a long time because he had the backing of some bigger power, to be sure. That was not an illusion. Jared. Where would you point to like As in, the question is, when, when was Satan his cohort created? Yeah, like, after creation, so they're a part of time, or you feel like, you see how maybe they're outside of time almost? Uh, I think we, we see even in Genesis that you know, God, in the second day, is creating the sun, moon, and the stars, putting them out there, and, that, and the ancient mind knows that not just to be balls of gas burning in the stars, but these are the host of heaven. This is when, pre, before man shows up, heaven is, and in heaven is already populated with a host of creatures, of, of subservient beings, of a kind of a celestial family of the Lord. So, they, I mean, they're created, and then they fall. Yeah, I, I believe that we would understand. I mean, we don't fully understand, right, how spiritual beings function. We, we see glimpses of it throughout Scripture. But yes, I believe they would understand time as we do. They are created, in, and they're a part of the created order. So yeah, if you can live for you know X numbers of tens of thousands of years in some spiritual place, I don't understand how that works, but we at least take from Scripture that it does happen. Rob, we'll go to you, and then we'll move on. So with the, the, the timing of creation and then the fall of Satan and the temptation of Eve, you're saying, is that like, you know, on day eight that took place? Right. To Jared's point, like, are they within time? They're within time. Yeah, I can't tell you how much time elapsed between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. I don't know. But yes, it was, it was something that actually happened. It was a historical event, we'll say. 
Yeah, it was not in some faraway transient place. It was in Eden, a real spot created by God. All right, so here's a longer passage, but this, this is really getting to uh, building on what Isaiah says, kind of the who and the what and the why of Satan's temptation. So bear with me as I read this larger text, but it is important for our consideration. This is Ezekiel 28, 11 to 19. So the context here is technically it's an indictment against the, the king of Tyre. But it's using, as an illustrative purpose, clearly a, a, a text that is not talking about a human person. This is, this is saying, you are just like this, and it's referring to the legacy of Satan's origin. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst, it consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever." So much like that Isaiah passage that we looked at from Isaiah 14, where we get the name Lucifer again, it's more context for who Satan is, it's that same idea. Yeah, you wanted to elevate yourself. You wanted to be the god of your own sanctum, and yet now you're cast out to the point where somebody who knows the story looks, is this you? Is this really, this is the guy who gave us so much trouble? It's derision from God's perspective of saying even the simplest believer can see that their enemy is no more. So there's a lot here, but this, this establishes, right? We see Satan in Eden and that he is this, this cherub, this great, you know, it's not like a, a Rubens painting where it's a little shirtless baby tumbling through the stratosphere. This is a flaming guardian angel of God. He had a front row seat to the throne room. That's where Eden was. It was God's footstool on earth. It was meant to be expanded. We'll get to this. As we look back to Genesis 1, we recall, so God created the sun, moon, and stars before he created mankind, to Jared's question. As we saw, this designation refers not only to material celestial objects, but to spiritual beings. In short, God created the angelic host before he created mankind. That's also what we're seeing here with the, the phrase stones of fire is referring to spiritual beings. Satan is there before his corruption, happily enjoying the fact that this is where the two kingdoms of God come together. Earthly creation, spiritual heavens. They are overlapped. It's like a concentric circle. Eden's in the middle. 
it would be actually really no surprise when I think about it that Eden or uh, Eve would say, "Oh, look, it's a you know, it's a serpent spirit. Let's go chat with that." It's not shocking to her. This is where these things are meant to be. Ezekiel and Isaiah are both talking about how these cooperated in this space. Daniel 10 also hints at this. We'll talk about Daniel 10 some more next time. Uh, but we see Gabriel angel of the Lord was delayed in answering Daniel to explain his dream and prophecy because the, quote, prince of Persia blocked his way. And, and the, the, the Greek translation here is this word archon or ruler or dominion, a prince. This is where Paul is talking about principalities, as in whoever has set up shop over Persia was stopping Michael from coming and helping out Daniel. And so we get this idea. This is kind of the type of being we're talking about here. Again, we'll talk about that more in the future, but that's just more context for what type of thing Ezekiel is talking about here. Who is the devil? So Satan, the tempting spiritual serpent, he desired dominion over the earth in the matched majesty of his dominion in heaven. Think about this. He and the other high spiritual beings, these are you know, beautiful, wonderful creations of the Lord. They are reigning with him. They are advocating for his dominion. They are operating. You know, it's like we mentioned last time, it's kind of the understanding of almost the Hebrew staff team is the idea. God chooses to bring others in to do his will. He could do it by himself, absolutely. He chooses creation in order to facilitate that. These are the Bene Elohim, the sons of God, this concept of these high beings. So consider the offense to so high and beautiful creature when Adam, who is made of the mud, is raised up to be given dominion over the finest of all God's creation, earth. We already have the heavens. God moves on from the creation of the heavens to say, I'm going to make something even better. Here's the earth, and I'm going to populate it and make it this beautiful sanctum. This is where I'm going to put my footstool, my throne room. And then consider that the pride, again, we, we always ascribe pride to Satan. He might be waiting in the wings thinking, great, I, I can't wait to rule earth. This is going to be great. And he says, actually, uh, this clod of earth, Adam, you get, you get the crown. You get the kingdom. It was at this point that scripture suggests most clearly that Satan fell from glory, not before the creation of man, but because of it. Perhaps, perhaps a simultaneous, this is one take on this interpretation. I think Revelation gets to this quite a bit. But as in, it was because of the affront to his honor that he says, you're going you're gonna to give this guy dominion over this beautiful creation you've made? And that is where he says, I'm going to ruin him because you didn't give it to me. I think we can see that going on here. Frederick Leahy, I mentioned him. He's the author of Satan Cast Out, the book I recommended He has this to say, which is, I think, very, very fruitful for our consideration. Some speak of Satan as sovereign of this world under a divine sentence which has not yet been executed. Or again, it's said that when Satan successfully tempted Adam, he wrested the scepter of authority from man and gained the right to rule the human race. Though Adam was a steward and trustee of God's creation, Satan had no authority to rule men, for man was never his own master. Therefore, there could be no scepter of rule belonging to man, which was transferable to Satan after the fall. God has given Satan no dominion over man. Man is only within the dominion of Satan because of his own sin. 
So this is, again, a misconception that, as John pointed out earlier, Satan wants to have authority. And perhaps he did think, hey, if if I trick Adam and Eve out of it, it'll come back to me. And functionally, we can, again, look at the the, uh, allotment of the nations to these, you know, eventually these pagan gods, these fallen creatures. He had a good run of it for a while. There's some argument, too, as much as he is with Baal, you know, there could be also that when he's the prince of Rome, speaking this principality language, that's why when Christ is tempted, he says, I can give you all the kingdoms on the earth. Because it is plausible that he could have been over that entire ordering. But that was never his, just as, you know, if he thinks he can take this scepter of authority, as Lee, he says, that was never ours either, though. Because we know that while Adam and Eve were mandated to expand Eden to the ends of the earth, they belong to the Lord. We are not our own masters. That would have been a lie from the beginning. And so even in his attempted deception, Satan is deceived by his hubris. He cannot rule the heavens and the earth. It was never possible. Any questions here? Yeah. Oh, sorry, Ray. Let's go to, yeah, Casey, you go at first. So the question is, do angels have more free will than humans? I don't think we have any reason to believe that that's the case. I mean, we only know so much about the the angelic realm. However, clearly, Satan was created not fallen and then chose rebellion. And and many of his cohort did with him as well. So there, there obviously was agency there, just as we have agency here. God ordains all things. We don't ignore that whatsoever. But within that, we are still held accountable to what we do. It's a, you know, it's an inexplicable truth. These two things are both valid at the same time. We see that there's no room for redemption in angels. There's no precedent for that in Scripture. There is, blissfully for us, we do have a road out of perdition. But for the angelic host, these spiritual beings, yes, they certainly could choose to go sideways, and some certainly did. Any other questions? We have about two or three minutes here. Yes, Erica. Choose to fall, and I thought, well, they angels don't experience grace. There is no irresistible grace back here for an angel. So we are drawn to God by grace. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have irresistible grace. They mm-hmm. don't experience God that way. Yeah, Erica's point is there. There is no concept of irresistible grace for angels. They don't have that. And, and consider again, if 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 the paradigm here is that obviously whatever Satan is, cherub guardian angel, son of God, whatever you want to call it, is a higher order of being than we are, yet at the same time, our hearts have such a greater richness and depth because God chose to order us that way. No wonder he is envious of this little clod of dirt that somehow gets a better seat at the table despite his frailty and smallness. Ray, did you still have a question? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so raised question is simply, why did he fall? And I, I believe we see throughout Scripture that simply despite his excellence in creation, he was way at the top of the pecking order, yet... To Casey's point, there's still that, you know, he's not created as an angelic robot. There was still agency that he exercised and realized he wanted to be higher than his peers. He wanted the dominion of earth. All these different things. The more that God is creating, the more beauty that God is putting into the universe, the more things he says, well, I want that. I want that for myself. I want that for me. I want, I want to be the king over this. So we see I mean, Ezekiel and Isaiah by themselves, even with those longer prophetic passages, are speaking to his motivation of setting himself up higher than his designated order, as in he wanted more than he was given, period. And seeing that he could take that perhaps from other people, other created beings, he went for it, obviously to his dismay. Now, we're not going to get through um, this last slide. This is how I was going to close it out. It's basically talking about the future state, maybe even the present future, if that makes sense, of Satan. He does not win. We know he's, he's toast in the end. And ultimately, uh, you know, we, we can wax poetic about millennial eschatology and all these big, uh, very fiery debate topics together. I think the case for amillennialism, which, you know, just quick thing, we're, we're already in the church age, we're already here, Satan's bound. That's the whole point. And Christ, in his victory at the cross, says he disarms the power and principalities, and this, the, the king of this world is cast out. We see it in Revelation, we see it in John. Both of these, kind of the, the, the fulcrums on which both of those books turn, the very center is Christ banishing Satan and saying, your run is up. At this point, we don't, Christ has the nations. We, Satan cannot deceive them anymore wholesale. Yes, he still absolutely tempts and deceives individuals. He is a roaring lion prowling around, but he's also chained up in the abyss, is what the language is there. He's under house arrest. I, I mentioned the mob earlier. You know, it's like Al Capone is in prison. He's still running the mafia. He's locked up. He can't assault the entire world, but he certainly still has influence all throughout. I'll read just the last bit. Frederick Lee, he has this, my favorite quote out of his book. Satan's counteroffensive is as hopeless as it is fierce. We must not believe the proud claim to the kingdoms of this world. His pretension to dominion is a lie. He is a usurper with no authority. It is God who holds the world in his hand, not this arch pretender. And in God's world, best part, Satan is an imposter, a squatter with no rights. That's his current predicament. Yes, are we assaulted by evil in the world, the corruption of our flesh, and his wiles? We sure are. But he doesn't make it. And in fact, when time is consummated fully in Christ's return, he's out of the picture. And that is a great blessing. Then we can take one comment or question, and then we'll, we'll get out of here. John? If, if, the, if his rule is completely impossible, then why does the Bible describe him as kingdom of the world? It's like prince of the air, ruler of this world. There seems to be at least some operational... Um, he's super to the throne mm -hmm. and still be an operational control of, this, of the region. And so what, what is your understanding of that? Yeah, so John's question is, okay, if, if he is toast in the end, why does he still have these terms of king of the world, god of the air, well, etc.? 
I mean, we have to think, ontologically speaking, again, he's a vastly higher being than us. And God, in his wisdom, look again at Job. Satan says, hey, I want to I knock Job off his pedestal. And God says, go for it. You have my permission. He gives, he uses Satan as the figurehead of corruption for the sake of sanctification in our lives. Yes, there are the non-elect and the elect among us. Because of the world being corrupted as it is, God uses that, those temptations, those trials, the afflictions of our heart to refine us, to draw us close to him. All right, Ryan, I would like to take your question, but we're out of time. I'm sorry. Let's go ahead and, and pray and we'll get out of here. Father, thank you again for the opportunity to look into your scripture and to consider these these deep things. We thank you, Father, for our camaraderie as Christians, as brothers and sisters in your royal family. Please prepare our hearts for worship now as we enter into it in just short order that we might go in peace and in purity. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.